Well, the sum total of what we know about the life and ministry of Jesus is found in four writings that are called the four Gospels and are contained in the New Testament. They are eyewitness accounts. It's important to know that. So they differ sometimes in details, but it's not because they contradict. It's because people were describing what they personally saw and heard sometimes in a scene that involved a number of people, a number of those things. And they come to that at the end of the Gospel of John. All of the Gospels end in the same way. They end with Jesus dying on the cross on a Friday afternoon and being raised from the dead on a Sunday morning. But at the empty tomb of Jesus, there are different accounts that put different women there. However, all four of the Gospels contain the name of Mary Magdalene. She was one who was there in all four accounts. And this passage only lists her there as it was read to us, but it doesn't mean that she was the only person there. It means she's the person John is going to tell us about who had a specific experience that we need to know about and think about. Now, the account that was read is very straightforward. In fact, it's interesting when you read it, you, you, you can kind of skim through it and understand the gist of it. But when you read it slowly, you realize that there are points where the narrative slows down to uh, almost slow motion. For example, Mary comes to the tomb early in the morning. It's still dark, but she can tell that the stone had been rolled away from the mouth of this tomb of a wealthy person where she and the others had laid the body of Jesus on Friday afternoon. And uh, she is so frightened by this that she runs back into the city of Jerusalem and she tells the apostles they have taken away the Lord and I don't know where they've put him. She apparently thinks that the grave has either been robbed or the owner of the grave, who would not have been well known apparently to the disciples, had decided perhaps this wasn't the best place to leave the body. He didn't want this person to be buried in his own personal tomb and asked that he be moved. But she, she's troubled by this and tells the apostles. We're told then that two of them, who are Peter and John, run together from Jerusalem out to the garden tomb. As they are running, John, who was younger at this point, runs faster, gets there first, but he stops outside the tomb and stoops and looks inside the door that would have been about four feet high. And he, he sees there that the linen, linen uh, grave cloth, so it's like strips of cloth that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus with spices and ointments in between, was lying there. The way it's worded it implies that it was just lying there as though the body had disappeared out of it and it was still just fallen down in the position that it was. Peter, however, runs up and he runs past John into the tomb, goes inside, and he sees Indeed, the grave cloths there, but he sees one other thing. He sees a napkin, like a piece of linen cloth about this size, that would have been laid over the face of Jesus at his burial. He sees it, and it's described as being folded up intentionally and placed, apparently, in the place where the head of Jesus would have laid. John, following him, being emboldened by Peter's impetuously running into the tomb, goes in and he sees the same thing. And this is where it really becomes fascinating. It says that John ran in, verse 8, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. That tells us that when he saw specifically the folded face cloth, he believed. Then it goes on mysteriously and says, for as yet, 
they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So it says he believed, but it says he didn't understand the scriptures. And apparently what it means is there was something about this folded face cloth that convinced John that the body had been raised. But he didn't have a clue as to what it meant. He didn't understand that the Old Testament scriptures taught that the Messiah would die and be raised from the dead. And because he didn't understand that, he saw it and he believed that there had been a resurrection, but he didn't understand the significance. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when he saw the grave cloths and the folded uh, napkin at the head, that he left marveling or pondering, wondering what this meant. So you have some implication that they, they understood something, but it was defective. They didn't have a full understanding of the significance of what they had just seen. But we come to the point that John wants to make Mary again makes her way to the tomb, apparently after the others had left to go back into the city. It focuses on her and the fact that she is still deeply grieving. And she stoops now, and in the daylight she looks in the entrance of the empty tomb. And what she sees is two men sitting at the head and the foot of where the body would have been laid on a stone-like bench cut in the wall. Now, we're told that she saw two angels, though it's doubtful that she would have grasped that these were angels. Angels don't appear in Scripture with wings or harps. They appear just as human beings, always in the Bible. And she would have seen two men dressed in white. Afterwards, she would have seen the significance of them. But they asked her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, apparently thinking that the grave has been robbed or someone is asked to have the body moved, and she wants to take care of it, give it a proper burial. Then we're invited to think that she sees something outside the tomb, and she goes out, and there she finds another man. And she thinks he's the gardener, like the caretaker of this garden, in which this very wealthy tomb has been cut into the rock and covered with a huge stone in front that rolled over the entrance. She sees this man, and, and he asks her two questions. But we're told as the readers that Jesus is who this person is. She, as is usual in the Gospels, can't figure out who he is when she first sees him. He says two questions. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she's still under this impression that the grave has been robbed and she's, or that it's, the body's been moved. She says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus, of course, reveals himself to her. Now, what's so fascinating about this are these two questions that are asked of her. Who, or excuse me, why are you weeping? It's the first one. And the second one, asked in rapid-fire succession with no time in between, is, whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? And it, at first she evidently takes this to be simply the kind question of a concerned stranger, someone who sees her crying and he's concerned about it and asks her, what's the matter? And so she wants to take the body and bury it properly. But it's interesting, this is the kind of conversation, you know, sometimes in life you have a conversation where you don't realize the significance of the person you're talking to, and then afterwards you realize it, and you look back and you think differently about it. 
you, you realize there was more significance to certain things that were said than you gave credit for. Like, let's say you go to a garden party uh, some afternoon, you meet an older woman there, and uh, you're, you're talking to her, and she's nice and all of that. But at the end of the conversation, she says something as you, you part, which makes you realize, oh, that's the mother of my new girlfriend. And you look back and think, well, what did I say, you know? I have this happen all the time. It really drives me nuts. I, I, I'll be traveling somewhere, and I'll talk to somebody on a train or whatever sitting next to me, and, and we'll have a nice conversation until they ask me, what do you do for a living? And then I, I always want to say, well, I'm a teacher, you know, or something like that. But I say, out of grim honesty, I'm a pastor. And, and uh, sometimes you just see people, it's like, they kind of stiffen up for a moment, and you can tell the Rolodex is flipping over in their mind. They're thinking, did I swear? <laughs> did I say something bad? I'm sure this man's never heard a swear word before in his life. <laughs> but you know what I mean. We have conversations at times. We don't give them much credence, but then we understand, oh, this person was different than I thought, was someone other than I thought, maybe a much more significant person than I thought. And you replay the conversation and think, Oh, that's what was meant when this was said or something like that. That's exactly what's going on here. In fact, it's, it's how the Gospel of John is written. He continually invites the reader to, to see double meanings and things. I don't mean mystical meanings. I mean sometimes things are said that have a literal meaning, but they also have an implication that there's something spiritual going on. For example, John... Uh, describes in the beginning of the book, in chapter 3, Jesus had a nighttime interview with a uh, religious leader, a very famous person who would be the equivalent of a senator, a, a member of the Sanhedrin. And, and this man asked Jesus to come at night, presumably, so that uh, no one will see him talking with Jesus. And he wants to ask Jesus a question, but Jesus starts the conversation. He jumps the gun, and Jesus said, I tell you truly, you must be born again. Famous passage, people have heard that phrase. Well, that's an odd way to start a conversation, but what's so interesting about it is the word translated again in your Bible, most Bibles have a footnote that tell you this if you read it carefully, it can mean again, which means like a second time, indicating that you must experience a birth that is the equivalent in power and consequence to the first time you were born. That which brought you into the world and brought you life, you must have another kind of birth another birth. It also means to be born from above. The same word can mean again or it can mean some from above, and John probably meant both. And he was indicating by that one word that Jesus was saying to him, you must have an experience of birth equivalent in power and consequence to your birth, your physical birth, but it must be from above, spiritual in nature, coming from God. And then the rest of the passage goes on and unfolds that truth. There's a number of places in John like this, but the one that you can't miss because John explains it in case in our dull-mindedness we miss it is a key point in chapter 11. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish Senate, the leaders of the nation, the religious leaders are meeting together and they're discussing what to do about this Jesus because the Romans are beginning to wake up to the fact there's some dissension among the Jewish nation. And the high priest Spike speaks up at one point, and he says something that he just means on a purely literal level. He, he says uh, uh, this, don't you understand, he says to the others, that 
Don't you understand that it would be better for one person to die than for the whole nation to suffer? What he means is, wouldn't it be better for us to turn Jesus over, let the Romans deal with him, rather than having them come down and bring some kind of discomfort and pain on the whole nation? But John goes on and he says, oh, by the way, what he said, he just thought was like a simple fact that was understood. God meant to use him as a prophet and speak through him. So John interprets it. Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord, but because he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John loved to use double meaning, something in which it is literally true, but it also has a spiritual significance. I'm not talking about mystical kind of meanings that have no connection with what's said. I'm talking about there's a literal meaning. It doesn't deny that. But there's a secondary idea that we're meant to ponder and think on. And that's what happens in this passage when these two questions are asked of Mary. Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? She would have heard those as the kind uh, questions of a concerned person, but afterwards she would have looked back on the conversation in light of what happened, in light of realizing this is the risen Lord, and thought of those two questions and realized there was a deeper significance to those questions. And we, as the readers, are invited to be drawn into and ask the same questions what is it about the resurrection that draws out these questions that go into our hearts and make us reflect on our own lives? Why are you weeping? Now, I want to, to say at the very outset, everything I'm going to say is kind of an illustration of something, a famous saying that was written by a uh, philosopher, mathematician in the 1600s. You may have heard of him. His name was Blaise Pascal. He's uh, famous for being a mathematician, but he wrote a number of things that are still quoted. They're very powerful. But one of them is this. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Hear it again. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can never be filled by any created thing, but only by the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Now, as a Christian, he was writing a sentence that describes so much of what the Bible says to us. And here's a passage that is like a, an illustration of where he drew that thought from and articulated it in the way that he did. Mary is asked these two questions by Jesus. We want to ponder, what did they mean to her? What would they have meant to the apostles when they heard them? John, who wrote this down later and recorded it, and what are we meant to ask from it? Well, we only know three things about Mary Magdalene. It's interesting that many people today in certain occultic circles think that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus. Have you ever heard that? The wife of Jesus, she had his children and so forth. There's absolutely no evidence in early Christianity of that. In fact, there's really only one verse in the Gospel of Luke, outside of the narratives of the resurrection, there's only one verse that says anything about her. And we can draw three things about Mary. First of all, she was from Magdala. Her name means Mary from Magdala. Magdala was a city 
uh, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's the region where Jesus was from. And six miles north, there's another city called Capernaum, which was the uh, home of the Apostle Peter and of James and John, and it's where their fishing business was located. Capernaum was the city uh, that Jesus made his headquarters during the whole of his earthly ministry. They always return to that or leave from that in the different uh, travels that they had during his ministry. And uh, six miles south of that is Magdala. That's all we know, that she was from there. She's identified by her place first. Secondly, we're told in Luke that she was a woman from whom seven demons had gone out. Presumably, it means had gone out under the ministry of Jesus, that he had rescued her from severe oppression, demonic oppression, that would have shown up in her life in emotional ways, in physical ways possibly, in the way she related. She had been very oppressed by these things. He rescued her from it, and uh, she is pictured as a woman deeply devoted to him for it. And thirdly, we gather that she was a woman of some independent means. We don't know if she was fabulously wealthy or not, but we know that in the next verse in Luke, she is counted among a number of women who traveled with Jesus and supported Jesus and the apostles, it says, out of their own means. That is, there were some wealthy women who were also disciples of Jesus, and they supported Jesus in his ministry during the three and a half years. Mary was one of them, so they had some independent source of support. This passage implies the same thing when she says to the gardener, she wants to, to take care of the body. She means, I want to make sure it has a proper burial. A person wouldn't offer that if they had the means, didn't have the means to take care of it. So that's all we know about her from Magdala. She had been saved by Jesus from severe demonic oppression, and she was a woman of some uh, independent source of income. Now, why is she weeping? First, the angels ask her that. Then the Lord asks her that, unknown to her. Well, she's obviously weeping because Jesus has died. But what was it, in the little that we know about her, that would have caused her grief to be as, as um, detailed as it's described to us in this whole passage, to carry her through a long period of time? Why would she have been so distraught at the death of Jesus? And the reason is quite obvious. That is, if she was this person who had been severely spiritually and emotionally oppressed and had been delivered by Jesus, she had found in Jesus the only freedom from bondage that she experienced in her own life that she ever knew. She had hoped and thought that it was in this person that freedom would be found, and she wanted him to be there to assure that she would experience, and suddenly he was gone. So she had found in Jesus a relationship that set her free. She had found him to be the healer of her soul, to give her some sense of emotional stability and spiritual stability. And now the one who had brought that and the security of the relationship that had brought that, with all of its acceptance and its healing, that was gone. Obviously, she would be distraught. Well, let's think about the apostles. What was it about the apostles that would have caused them to be so uncertain and, and to be so filled not only with grief but with fear? That's how they're described. Well, they had found in Jesus the Messiah. And they had invested the word Messiah with meanings that they drew from the Old Testament. The Old Testament said the Messiah would be the anointed king. The Messiah just means the anointed one. It's the Hebrew word for the word Christ that is usually used in the New Testament. And um, 
they thought that the Messiah was the one who was going to come and he was going to be a conquering king. And they had plenty of verses to demonstrate that from the Old Testament. So they were mystified towards the end of his life when Jesus kept talking about suffering, being arrested, dying. And they figured that these things, he must be speaking spiritually somehow. He couldn't be speaking literally because it didn't fit in with their understanding of the Messiah. And now what Jesus had been saying had literally come to pass and they were completely lost. How could we have, have attached ourselves or been attached by him to the Messiah? And now the Messiah died a criminal's death on the cross. Now, what the passage suggests is that these people were looking to Jesus and they had some conception of what he was about, but it was only part way. It wasn't complete. And Jesus, when he reveals himself, reveals himself in his fullness and his completeness. You know, people today often speak of the fact that we human beings are made with desires, that we go through life looking to have fulfilled. Most of us are aware of that, but the Bible takes that concept far deeper than any modern psychologist would have thought of it. The Bible says that God has placed into the human heart a desire for a desire to feel eternally secure in an unconditionally accepting relationship. But what we really want is we want this sense of complete security in knowing that there is someone who loves us with a love that will never abandon us. And it's a hunger so deep inside of us that from the very beginning of life, we start looking for that. It's the way God built us. We look for it first in the face of our parents, and we do if we're fortunate, find a taste of that. We find people who radically care for us and love us. And yet, as we move through life, we find out that there is no earthly thing that is capable of giving that. Parents sometimes fail. Those of us who are parents know that better than anyone. Sometimes we don't have perfect insight into the needs of our children. Sometimes we make promises that we're not going to be able to keep. Sometimes we die and what the child was looking for, he or she realizes, well, I did taste it there, but I didn't find it completely. And what we do is we go through life and we continue to look for that as we move through life. And we're always disappointed. It always falls short. We begin to look for it in other people as we move through life. And we find sometimes that there's someone that gives us that sense of real acceptance, real love, real satisfaction. And and uh, we, we attach ourselves to them, but then they disappoint us. And so we might have a number of lovers, but finally, we find one we really believe will do it, and we marry him or we marry her. And as that famous sentence uh, in The Princess Bride, that profound work of philosophy says, uh, <laughs> be prepared for disappointment. I don't mean that marriage is like a horribly disappointing thing. I happen to be happily married for going on 40 years. But the fact is, if you look to another person to give you this eternal, lasting, thirst-quenching sense of complete acceptance, it will always fall short. 
After all, you are an imperfect person, and the person you marry is imperfect, so you're bound to fail each other at points. And then again, sometimes people fall out of love. Sometimes people die. It, you know, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can never be filled by any created thing. Now, marriage, you understand, can give us a taste of that. In a good marriage, you have this sense, this fleeting sense of time that is like eating a good meal, eating a good meal that satisfies you. You do have that, but it's a satisfaction that you know is going to go away, and you're going to have to have more meals in order to get through life. But we have an unquenchable kind of thirst inside that is looking for something that will satisfy eternally. Or how about the apostles? What the apostles were looking for was not as much the relationship as it was the significance the relationship brought to them. That's another deep longing in the human heart, this idea that I, I want to do something or be something that actually makes a difference, and I want to feel that. The security and the certainty of knowing that they had attached themselves to the Messiah, the one promised by the prophets to come and be the conquering king, to throw off the yoke of Rome, to make Israel again the center of the earth. And they loved it when Jesus talked about his kingdom and them sitting on 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes and all that kind of thing. But they were mystified when he talked about suffering and died. They attached themselves to that part, that truth about Jesus that he would give them a significance they could never have on their own. They didn't attach themselves to the other parts. But the thing is, his death was to them the death knell of their expectations. So their fear and their grief was just as deep as Mary's, only it rose from a different source. I remember as a child wanting something so badly, you might have this memory as a little child, thinking, I want this thing. It might be a toy. It might be a drawing kit. I mean, it could be any one of a number of things. I want this thing, and if I can get this, I'll be happy. Do you remember thinking that? I'll be happy if I get this. And then you got it. And maybe you were happy for a time, but it was always fleeting. It was always fleeting because part of childhood is learning that things don't satisfy you found out that the thing you wanted, well, it wasn't as good as you thought it was. When you started playing with it, it wasn't that great. Or the thing that you wanted, when you got it, you, you realized um, it broke. It, it didn't hang around. Or you got it and you really liked it. It was just as cool as you thought, but the luster rubbed off after two or three days. I mean, it didn't take very long. It wasn't good enough for you. Childhood is the time to learn that, to find out that things don't satisfy, but the problem is, we realize that on kind of an outward level, but deep in our hearts, we keep going on the same rat wheel through life. We keep looking for things that we think will finally fill the empty space inside. And we move to bigger things. They're no longer toys. They're jobs, responsibilities, marriages, houses, whatever it is. We, we look to more and more things as we move through life and the sad truth is we find ourselves being disappointed. Not that those things are bad. Not that they're wrong at all. God designed us for them in one sense. But the truth is when you look for ultimate satisfaction in an earthly thing, it will always fall short. And the deep longing put in our heart has been put there 
so that we will realize exactly what Blaise Pascal said. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can never be filled by any created thing, but only by the creator made known through Jesus Christ. She says to him, um, he says to her, why are you weeping? In other words, what is it you are so deeply longing for in life that its loss or its lack brings disappointment? A disappointment so deep that it marks a part of your life with a sense of sorrow. He's not asking us, why are you unhappy all the time? No one is meant to be unhappy all the time. But everyone knows as you go through life. And part of moving through life is facing disappointment and determining how to respond to it. And oftentimes what we do is we respond to it by redoubling our efforts to get that fleeting thing that we think won't disappoint. But the whole purpose of it, God says, is to make us look inside and think about why it is we feel the disappointment. And that's found in the second question. He doesn't always say, why are you weeping? He says, whom are you seeking? In other words, who are you looking for? And in this place, it means who or what are you um, looking to to satisfy your deepest longings in life? Are you looking to other people? Are you looking to things? Whatever it is you're looking to, they're not going to satisfy because of this God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. For Mary, it was an invitation to reflect on the fact that what she wanted out of the Messiah and what she had received and experienced was a healer. That's a good thing. But her conception of Jesus was far too limited. And if there's anything the whole passage is saying, it's saying to Mary, I want you to understand, Mary, who I actually am is far greater than what you have experienced. I'm more than just a healer. I am more than just the person who made you feel better when your life was very grim. I know I'm that, but I'm so much more than that. And the apostles, they wanted a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah on their own terms. And their terms were, they thought, the terms of the Old Testament, the conquering king. And they were half right, just like Mary. They were half right. But they didn't realize that when you get the real Messiah, the real Messiah is the whole package altogether. He's the suffering servant that Isaiah promised. He's the one who would be pierced through the iniquities of his people. He's the one who would die, but not stay dead. He was the one who would be raised from the dead. And they didn't understand this. So what they were looking for was always defective until they saw the real Jesus. And left to ourselves, we'll always look for the wrong thing until we understand who Jesus really is. You know, I'm embarrassed to share this, but there's, there's a particular way in which this showed itself in my life for many years. Still sticks its ugly head up once in a while, but it, it's, it's this. I have two brothers-in-law. My two sisters are married to men who um, both have uh, doctoral degrees from very prestigious universities, and they both have become famous in the very small pond in which their field of, of uh, life is. But, you know, if, if you Googled either one of them, you would find out they've done all kinds of things and done all kinds of research and written all kinds of books and everything. My sisters married those 
kinds of men because that's the way we were raised. And I, I was raised thinking life would really be complete if I could get a doctorate and I could write and do things that other people read. And uh, it didn't happen. And there were a lot of times when I was younger that I felt like, man, life's just not working out the way I wanted to. You know, it's, it's funny. I'm embarrassed saying it because it seems so petty now. It seems silly to me now. But the reality was I felt a lot of disappointment as we moved through life. And sometimes I would think it's because I had these four children. You know, why do I have to have four children? <laughs> like I didn't play a part in that. It wasn't a real good question to ask, but, and I never asked it out loud, thankfully, for my children or my wife, but it's kind of like, you know, I, I have too many responsibilities. I couldn't get what I really wanted in life. Or why did I have to pastor this church? And it, and it grew, and so I really had to work. I mean, you know, I couldn't, like, just sort of play at this thing and have some other things on the side that I really wanted to do. And, and so I wasn't able to go to school and all this kind of thing. And then later, as I realized more about God and the way he works in people's lives, I realized what I was looking for was not wrong. Those aren't bad things. I don't mean to imply my brothers-in-law are bad people in any way. But I can say, if you're looking for it as I was, to get something deeper, to get this eternal sense of being really worth something, if that's what you're looking for, you'll never find it in getting more education, in teaching at the most prestigious university or anything. You'll never find it because you're looking for something eternal in an earthly thing. And you know, the only thing that, that lessens my embarrassment is my certainty that every one of you have something like that that you're not going to share. There's something that goes through your mind that every once in a while dogs your heels and makes you think, I could have been so much more. I could have felt so much more. I could have had things that I never quite got to. And the fact is, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that can never be filled by any created thing, but only by the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And what happens in the passage is Jesus reveals himself to Mary, and he does it in a, in a most graphic way. It, it says, uh, after she asked her question, that he simply spoke her name, Mary. It, it implies in the, the bitter detail of the passage, which is very detailed, that she wasn't looking at him. And so she had to turn around when she heard it. She just heard his voice. And there's significance to that because Jesus himself taught earlier in the Gospel of John in describing himself as the good shepherd. There's this passage where it describes what the good shepherd is like. And it says, the sheep know his voice and he calls them each by name. And what you have in this passage is you have a graphic description in a physical, literal way of that happening. Her back is turned to him. He speaks, and what she couldn't see in him after the resurrection, she didn't realize who he was. She knows his voice, and she turns around, and she grasps him, apparently clings to him, holding on to him. And then he says to her the most mysterious thing, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. People have wondered, what in the world does that mean? Does it mean, you know, I'm not supposed to be touched yet? Like the, the clay is not hard enough, you know? You might get your fingerprints in it. It evidently doesn't mean anything like that because in the next passage, he holds his hands out to Thomas and says, put your fingers in my wounds. 
He can be touched. There wasn't anything like that. Apparently what it means is stop holding on to me as though you could keep me here because I'm going to ascend to my Father, something that he had said before. That's what's so interesting about the Bible. There's, in Jesus' life, there's his earthly life. You know, Jesus' earthly life, the first uh, 30 some years of his life in which he lived in the flesh. And when he was with his disciples, he was with them all the time. They knew where he was. He didn't just come and go and appear and disappear. Then you have his death and his resurrection. There's 50 days. For 50 days, he shows up and he leaves and nobody knows when he's going to be there. But he's there physically when he's there. He eats fish in their presence. He lets them touch him. He speaks to them and teaches them. And then at the end of that, he tells them all, there's a whole bunch of people, all to come to a certain place on a mountain. We're not told where it is. And they all assemble there, and he speaks to them one last time, and then he ascends into heaven to the Father, and he's never seen again. So we're in this in-between period where Mary sees him. She wonders, is this the, the, the last thing I will ever know of him? He says, stop holding to me as though you could hold me here to the earth. I'm going to be around for a time, but... I will ascend to the Father. Go and tell my brothers, and she becomes the first witness to the resurrection. Can I note one final point that's made in this whole passage, part that wasn't read. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to look at it. Towards the end of the passage, it tells us about another time, eight days later, when the apostles saw Jesus. Apparently, his disciples were together inside a room in Jerusalem, and it says that Thomas was with them. We've been told that Thomas doubted and said, if I don't see him and touch him, the marks of his nails and the wounds in his side, if I don't see that and touch it, I'll never believe. And Jesus comes, and he says to Thomas, verse 27, put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God, and gives to Jesus two titles put together for the first time in Scripture, Lord, Master, Ruler, and God. And then Jesus says something so important. It's like when you read it, you realize, I've got to go back and look at the whole chapter in light of this statement. Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now what it tells us is that seeing and believing was a wonderful thing and they became the eyewitnesses and they wrote these things down That's on their testimony that we rely. But there was something defective about that in Jesus' view. He says those who believe without seeing him, like all of us, those who believe without seeing him are in a better state because they live by faith and not by sight. And they still await the day when they see with their eyes the very one who was crucified for them. But Mary wasn't there. She saw the risen Lord. Now, what are you looking for in life? What is it you long to get? And where will you find it? Blaise Pascal said, and it summarizes this passage in so many ways, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can never be filled by any created thing, but only by the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. The fact is the deepest longings of our souls can only be met by the one who made them. 
As we go through life, we can have many relationships and many responsibilities that at a time give us a fleeting taste of that, but there's only one source. And if you don't go to the source, you'll never find the satisfaction that you are looking for that is eternal and complete and lasting. And that is Jesus Christ, who not only died for sins, but rose from the dead. Let's pray together. Again, our gracious God, we thank you so much that you are a God of grace. And you force us to ask these questions. You invite us to ask them that we might reflect on the state of our own hearts. Oh, how often we look for other things or we look to other things to find legitimate things. But we're looking in the wrong place. And when we look in the wrong place, we will always be disappointed Keep us from simply redoubling our efforts to do that as we move through life and being people who get more and more and experience more and more but are always unsatisfied and disappointed and ultimately angry. Help us to be those people who look to Christ and to Christ alone and find in him forgiveness, but even more than forgiveness, peace and life that satisfies for eternity. We pray this in his name. Amen.